Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. Amen. Woo! Beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. Or at least look like it anyways. Praise God for all these trees. Aren't they beautiful? <laughs> you know, it's been fun already just tightening up your tennis shoes and running through the Christmas season. Been to all different kinds of uh, celebrations here in the church and outward. Uh, we went to a fundraiser for Idaho Chooses Life a week and a half ago or something. They raised that night. It was kind of fun. A live auction, $109,000. I, I, now... Yeah, yes, by all means, praise the Lord. And I don't mean to bring the attention to the money so much, although that I'm kind of gobsmacked. I mean, like, that's a lot of money. Um, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to who they're up against with the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, the Satanic Church of America, and they've got deep pockets, right? And $100,000 worth of advertising on media, television, and radio, I mean, boom, right? But God right? But God. And, and, and it's one of the things that I love about this time of year, Christmas time. We're running and we're just hectic and things are going on everywhere. Even last week we saw Jesus fell asleep in the back of the boat, you know. Keeping up with it all can wear a person out, you know. And, and, and here we come to Luke chapter 9 and a fun chapter. There are 11 standalone sermons in chapter 9. If you were to break out all the segments and make them into little sections, each one in context is a, is a whole sermon you've probably heard preached somewhere. As is our fashion, we go through the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but I'm hoping to ha maybe see a little bit bigger picture here this morning. Um, I'm going to pick us up at Luke chapter 9, verse 1, then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, worshiping you, celebrating you, desiring, Lord, to make you known, to be able to take you out into the world that they might see what we see. Help us, I pray, this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, to see you, to hear what the Spirit says to the church, and to be doers of your word in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So, here we see now Jesus has been saying what the king and the kingdom are all about in his Sermon on the Plain. We know it also as the Sermon on the Mount. And he said it, and then in chapters 7 and 8, he showed it. Okay? So, first he says... Then he shows, and like any good manager, any good boss, you say it, you show it, and then you let them do it. So today we're going to have them sent, okay? Say, show, and send. And here we see he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over the demons and to, con 
to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. A little play on words that Luke uses right here, and again, it's not really in the text, but in your mind, back in chapter 6, we saw Jesus go up on the mountain and pray, and then that morning he appointed, he designated 12 sent ones, okay, apostolos. And these now are the 12, they're disciples, they're followers of his, and he called these apostles, the 12 apostles together, and he sent them, apostello. And so there's a little word play here. Those who were called to be sent, guess what he did? He sent them. Do you realize that that falls upon you and I as well? right? And he's going to clarify that before this morning is over, uh, Lord willing. But I love this, okay? His 12s, he gave them power and authority. He didn't just send them, just go see what you can stir up. No, he gave them a purpose. He gave them a mission, and he deputized them. He authorized them. He empowered them to accomplish that which he was sending them forth to do. And it says, the authority and power to over demons and diseases. Small little side note here, but they're separate categories. And sometimes people conflate the two, right? There's illness, and, and by all means, the scriptures tell us we need to pray for the sick, anoint those, and, and, and help heal them, you know, in the name of Jesus. But casting out demons, it's not like I have the demon of COVID or something like that. Um, that's putting two together, okay, in, in, in the wrong place. So power to deal with these issues that are affecting the physical body, but then also issues that are affecting the person. Um, and we're going to see this expanded a little bit as we go here. But they have authority, they have the right to, and power they have the ability to, and look what he says. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. That euangelizo uh, we talked about, evangelism, to preach the glad tidings, the good news, the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus Christ is here, right? That's the Christmas message, isn't it? Isn't that what the angels told them? Don't be afraid. I bring you glad tidings of joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the King, right? And that this is just a wonderful ministry not only did the angels participate in, but now we, 2,000 years later, continue to do when we say, Merry Christmas, right? And this is their commission to go out and say Merry Christmas, essentially. Just a little side note on that, this business of Merry Christmas, you might know it's built into two words, right? Christ. You can't take Christ out of Christmas, or all you have is a big mess. Okay, but at the same time, I know that's kind of lame, but you'll remember, I said it. Um, mass is really, really, uh, an interesting term as well. If you're familiar with the Roman Catholic tradition, they, they have what they call mass, okay, and that's a service. The word mass comes from the last phrase in the... Um, uh, Latin, in the Roman service, it is um, ite misa est. Ite misa est. Ite means go, and misa est means this is the sending. So essentially, when you come to the end of the church service, the end of the mass, it ends with 
this Misa, where they get the word mass, but it's the sending. It's the commissioning. It's the author, authorization and empowerment to go proclaim. Go. Ite. Misa est. You're being sent. That's where we get the term mass. And when we talk about the Christ mass, Christmas, what are we sent to do? To preach the king and preach the kingdom. Come, let us adore him, Christ, our Lord. Merry Christmas. And so, this is the beginning of what we're going to see in here of kind of a message I would like to kind of, if I would, build it around. And you're going to see it come out in different places. So, I'm not just taking liberty, but what I, what I see in here. Last week, we saw faith on display, right? An amazing faith, the wind and the waves and the demons and sickness and death, they all obeyed the word of God. They all obeyed this sower and his seed. They all responded in faith and did what they heard or were told to do. But in all of that, you'll notice some did not respond, right? And Jesus uses the parable of the seed that falls on the Saw a hard ground or the rocky ground or the weed-infested ground, right? And it doesn't produce. And in some of this, the idea being, um, as we go forward to share this good news, it's not always going to hit the, it's not always going to do what we want it to do, but it is going to do what it says to do. But the question in so much of this is, he said, but the question really is, who is he, and then what do we do? Last week, we, we talked about be careful how you hear, that you hear intentionally seeking what is my orders, my marching orders, what am I to do, and then do it, that the, the church might have ears to hear what the Spirit says to do, and then, ite, misa est, go, you're sent, okay? And so, this is going on, but some didn't receive. Some didn't believe. Some didn't trust. They put, didn't put their confidence in him, and they kind of were left with no fruit, no, nothing in, in, in to go with them. But here he is to preach the kingdom of God and the king. And so, my, my question to us this morning is, we've got the word, we've got the commission, we've got the authority, we've got the power, but what is it that we're supposed to do exactly? And at the end of the day, we're to bring people to Jesus. The question remains then, just like our reader board, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. For us this morning, I would say, who do we say he is? When we say Jesus Christ, when we say Merry Christmas, who do you say that he is? Because that's your message. Are you clearly communicating your message? Have you fully received <laughs> that message so that you now can repeat it? And so, they've been sent to preach the kingdom and heal the sick Verse 3, and he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor beg nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. 
And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so this is how they're to go out. They're to travel light. They're not to take a bunch of baggage. And if you have traveled very much, especially if you fly, it's really nice if you can get everything in a carry-on, right? Otherwise, you've got to check the bag and go to the carousel and hope that you don't get separated from your luggage. And I can tell you, when you go on mission, if you're in the backwoods of the Amazon or somewhere in Southeast Asia, you don't want to be wheeling a bunch of suitcases through the jungle with you. You've got to travel light, right? And we are on mission. Misa est. And we need to travel light. Jesus is saying here, just travel light, depend on me for provision. You be about your father's business, and I will take care of the rest. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. We see this in the um, book of Acts in chapter 13. Barnabas and Paul, as they come to Antioch and Pisidia, they do what they're told to do. They evangelize. They bring the glad tidings, and they're driven out of town. And then they end up in uh, Lystra and Derby, and they're stoned, and, and, but they keep on moving on in their mission, in their ministry. Um, but we see there in Acts chapter 13, they actually, they do that. They, they shake the dust off their feet. Kind of an interesting corollary or something that kind of goes with this. Jesus says, um, don't take an extra tunic or a money belt or all those kinds of things. In the days of Jesus, uh, the rabbis would teach, coming out of the Talmud, that anybody entering the holy mountain, the temple mount, shouldn't bring with them a staff or shoes or a girdle of money or even dust on their feet when you go into the the temple precincts, into that holy place where you're there to worship. And the point of it being, the rabbis would teach, so that you gave no apparent appearances of the, being there to do business. You're there on a holy mission. You're there to worship. You're not there to uh, do business, right? If you're going to do business when you come to church, you, the business you do is with Jesus, all right? And uh, I, I don't have a problem with a person handing out a business card. I'm talking to somebody, and I need somebody to work on my car, or I'm look whatever. That's great. I love to work with my fellow believers. But the idea being here, um, you're to travel light, keep it simple. God will take care of you on this mission. You just focus on the message. The message is, who do you say I am? This is the king. This is his kingdom. This is Jesus Christ. And so they go for that, and it says, verse 6, So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Amen. They heard and they did. Really good. Going on, verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. Kind of an interesting thing here. Now, with Herod, this is Herod the Tetrarch, it says. Tetrarch means one of a fourth. And what happened when Herod the Great died, he broke up his kingdom amongst three sons and a daughter. 
and in the Galilee region, where we're at right now, this is Herod Antipas. When we get into Jerusalem, we're going to see Herod Archelaus, and later today, we just might see Herod Philip in the northern regions. Uh, but here, this is Herod Antipas, and remember, he is the one who had John put in prison because he had taken his brother, <laughs> Herod Philip, he had taken Philip's wife, Herodias, to be his wife. He stole it from his brother. And they had this terrible relationship, very unbiblical. The, the, the nation was in an uproar about the, the morality of their leaders, you know, the fallen morality. And, uh, and so Herodias says, you know, this is what I want. I want his head on a platter. And so Herod Antipas, that's what he got, his wife, for her birthday. And so he says, I, I killed John the Baptist, and I know he's a mighty man of God. People follow him. They, they recognize him as the prophet of their day, and he's perplexed. Um, some had said John had risen from the dead. Others, Elijah. And there's a promise in the book of Malachi that, um, that Jesus will be, or I mean that Elijah will be coming back to herald the Messiah. Could it be that this is the herald of the Messiah? Many people confuse John the Baptist for Elijah or some other prophet, some other prophet that had come to power. But he's hearing about all these miracles, and he's really excited about what this might mean. Now, remember the question I have for you this morning, who do you say that I am? I wonder who Herod thinks Jesus is. He's confused. He's perplexed. In chapter 13 in Luke, we read in verse 31, on that very same day, uh, some Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Okay, this is the day that Jesus had been preaching, narrow is the gate, and few there are that find it. And it says on that very same day, Pharisees came to say, you need to get out of Dodge, okay? Herod's mad at you. He wants to kill you. Um, Herod wants to kill you. Verse 32, and he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. And so they say, you need to leave. And he says, I'm already on my way. I have to go to Jerusalem. That's where my appointment is. But it's interesting, he calls Herod that fox, right? That crafty guy, that clever guy. And it's funny how so many people in society today, when it comes to Christmas and the Christmas message and all the Christmas movies and all the Christmas marketing, how they will tell you the meaning of the season. This is the meaning of Christmas. How many of you guys have heard a thousand meanings of Christmas, okay? And yet we know what the glad tidings are. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you will believe and receive, you don't have to perish. You go to heaven. That's the good news. But that's not what you hear on Hallmark. That's not what you see advertised, right, in, uh, on the internet or whatever. There's all kinds of warm, fuzzy things. And Herod's wondering, who exactly is this guy and what's he all about? So we saw there in chapter 13, um, also then in Luke 23, this is when uh, Jesus is now on trial and uh, he's, being, he's facing execution. In verse 6 of Luke 23, 
when Pilate, the one who was in charge that had him crucified, heard of Galilee, that Jesus was from Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. Jesus was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. I wonder what's going to be under the tree. Isn't that the meaning of Christmas? Then he questioned him with many words, but he, Jesus, answered Herod not. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, Jesus, and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. It's an interesting byline then. It says, that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, even though they hated each other. They, they teamed up mutual, mutual, whatever, allies against this Christ. So Herod doesn't know who he is, and, and, the, and, and the, the message goes on, the, the picture goes on as Luke lays it out for us. The 12 have been sent out, preach the kingdom, heal the sick. Herod's like, what, who is this guy? And so verse 10, and the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. <laughs> what an amazing trip. Now, you can read this in uh, the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark, and they talk about some fantastic things that were going on, the power, the authority that they're subject to us. Uh, just like you said, Jesus, it's actually happening. I love that about the springs. As we come here, um, I've always wanted to go to a church like this, you know. I've heard of churches like this where Jesus actually shows up. Jesus actually does stuff. Jesus actually answers prayers. People are being born again, and, and we see it regularly here, and it's so exciting. And, and, and here, they returned and told him all that they had done. Wow, let me tell you about my Jesus. Jesus is in the house, Right? And he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Okay, you've been out working hard, you're preaching, you're teaching, you're healing, you come back, you've got a lot of stories, we've been busy doing a lot of stuff, let's just go and take a little downtime, let's get alone and uh, rest, right? Bethsaida, uh, up along the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, uh, Beth in Hebrew means house. Bethsaida, the name of the village, means house of provision, okay, where you could go to stock up on supplies, right? Some kind of a bodega, warehouse, you know, or Walmart kind of place or whatever. Not exactly, but that's what the city means, house of provision. Um, and so he took them aside, not to the city, but outside the city, a deserted place. Uh, it was a fishing hometown kind of a place. It was actually the place where Philip, one of the uh, apostles, and Andrew and Peter are from, okay, their hometown. Verse 11, but when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. This is pretty much the story. Is that what your Christmas feels like sometimes? <sighs> you know, I, I called Cheryl this morning and uh, I, I probably shouldn't get into details, but I asked her, hey, what do you, you want to do something this afternoon? And I'm sure, and she was, I mean, she's so game. If she's listening or if she's not listening, I, God bless my wife, right? Because I am so spontaneous and so random, and I don't keep track of my calendar, but I thought, you know, I want to go do something really cool. And so, and she says, yeah, I'm in. 
And I know she, she works twice as hard as me this time of year. While I'm sitting on the couch and I'm doing something important like studying, she's cooking and she's baking and she's cleaning and she's prepping and she's doing all this real work, right? And yet when I say I want to go do something, there she is. Well, here the multitudes, they just show up. They always seem to show up and they knew it. They followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of a healing. God isn't asking us to do anything that he won't do himself and that he hasn't gone before us, right? And, and a lot of times when you find yourself in ministry and just like Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, you can get tired. You can get exhausted in the ministry. Yet, when an opportunity comes and somebody says, will you help me pray that prayer? What, what do you, mean? you know, the one so I can go to heaven... Oh, you know what, Look, at, call my secretary, get on my calendar, we'll make an appointment, we can talk about that. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, like, yes, right here, right now. <laughs> Let's pray, right? And, and, and so that's Jesus. The people call him, they follow him, they're trying to get some downside in their deserted place, the people come out, so what does he do? He preaches the kingdom, the glad tidings, the good news. He evangelizes them. He heals them. He meets their needs. Um, verse 12, and when the day began to wear away, I just, just as I read that, wear away, I'm thinking, I, I can feel it. I can feel the words coming off the page, right? I've been out here all day ministering. And as you're going to see before long, it wasn't just like 15 or 20 people showed up. It was like 10,000, 15,000 showed up. I thought this was supposed to be a secret place. <laughs> like, wow, there's more people than even live in the city of Burley, and they're all here right now. And so they're busy, and the day wears away. It says, when the day began to wear away, the 12 came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. Again, a little play on words. Bethsaida, the house of provision. Now you got to send them away. Go, tell, tell them to go to town and get a place to stay, you know, a room in the inn or, you know, something for dinner. Um, we're in a deserted place. Then he said to them, and if you look in the other Gospels, it says he said to Philip. Now, the reason I bring that out is I told you, who was from Bethsaida? Philip is from Bethsaida. This is his hometown. He knows Bethsaida, and Philip is, and the others, it does say, tell him to go get a place to stay, go get a bite to eat, go find some place for the night, and Philip, Jesus turns to Philip, okay, and he says, you give him something to eat. <sighs> right? And they've been out casting out demons, healing. Wow, we're so excited. Jesus is like, that's good. Let's go, let's go take a little downtime. Bam, game on. Thousands of people ministering all day long. The day is wearing on. Philip looks at these people and says, we can't. They need help. Jesus, tell them to go away. And Jesus turns that around. He says, you feed them. You ever feel that way? At Christmas time, you know, another party to go to? Are you kidding me? I don't know if I can eat that much. <laughs> you know, it's just, 
But that's the good side of it. The downside of it is a hospital visitation, but I'm supposed to be going to a party. And you find that your Christmas isn't turning out like you scheduled it to be. And you find out that you're busy, really, really, really busy. And then when you finally stop and just go, Lord, I love you. I love the church. I love Christmas. I love the ministry. I love all the opportunities you're giving me. Lord, I could use some rest. And the Lord says, Mike, get busy. You feed them. Isn't that what Christmas is all about? Eat day. Misa est. <laughs> Go. You're being sent. This is the Christ message. Preach the kingdom. Get busy, Mike. What are you thinking? Telling him to go away. I brought you a church. I mean, that, that would have been a mega church in our day. 10,000 people. Wow. Instant church. You know, one afternoon. Oh, tell him to go away. No, 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 no. Dig in, Philip. Besides, you're from around here. You could find some food. You give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all these people. And you remember the story from the other gospel accounts. There was some boy amongst the crowd who brought his sack lunch, right? And he had a couple little probably dried fish or fried fish and a, and a couple just biscuits, basically, not like huge loaves of bread. But they were able to get a little bit because that's all we got. Even the disciples didn't bring anything with them. Now, to their credit, he told them, don't take a staff, don't take a money bag, don't take your shoes, okay? So on that part, they were dependent upon others to care for them. But here, now, they're in a situation where they have to multiply that miracle to trust on this Christ, this king and his kingdom. You give them something to eat. Verse 14, for there were about 5,000 men. And when you read that in the scriptures, People will extrapolate that to include then the wives and the children of the men. Now, it doesn't say that in here, but it's not wrong to presume that certainly there would be some others. But generally speaking, when they would count, they would count the, one, the men in those day and age. That was how they would count it out. And so you can presume that you could double that real easy, right? Would all the guys be married? No. Would all the married people have kids? No. Would some of the married people have eight kids? Yeah. <laughs> You know, so you can, you can see it's going to be thousands. It's at least 5,000 if that wasn't enough, right? But there's a whole bunch of people to feed right here. Um, for there was about 5,000 of them. They said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. Have you ever been in a ministry where you've been feeding hungry people? Maybe you've been someplace where there's been a disaster a hurricane or an earthquake or a fire and you go to some place and set up a shelter maybe you've been into a mission field where you've gone out and you've you've brought some provision i know i've we've done it a number of times and one of the things that happens and you've got to be really careful about this it's going to take a lot of help as soon as people find out there's food it can become a riot it, it could get to the point where people will be pressing in so close to get whatever you're handing them that they could, they could trample one another. People could get hurt, right? So there's wisdom in this. Jesus is telling them to sit down. I know, I know human nature. I know how they can be greedy and 
You tell them to sit down in groups of 50, so 100 groups at least with 5,000. Tell them to sit down in groups. And they did so and made them all sit down. Now, if you've been tracking closely, that's a miracle. <laughs> Everybody talks about multiplying the loaves and fishes was a miracle. Man, that's a miracle. Getting 5,000 people to do? <laughs> Anyways. He made them sit down, and they did so. And, made, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So he took that meager fare, little bit of fish and bread, and in front of all the people as they're seated, he lifts it up, they can see him, and then he blesses this gift from God, and then he breaks and distributes. The word for blessed in the Latin translation is Eucharist. If you've ever taken communion in many uh, traditions, it's known as the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. And the word Eucharist comes from the Latin words to say good words. And that's what a blessing is. And so here is Jesus saying good words. Thank you, Father, for this provision. Thank you for looking upon our need. Thank you for supplying our need. And then he broke it, and he set it down before the disciples that they could distribute it. So he, he, they basically, they're having what we would call communion in certain ways. Certainly, they're coming to the table. They're becoming one with this, the, these loaves and fishes. He blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And so they ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of leftover fragments were taken up by them. Amazing. Amazing miracle. And, you know, it's one of those things that as you step out into ministry, you go to the hospital visitation when you meant to go to the Christmas party, and you find out as you walk out of that hospital, man, I just met God. I didn't want to go here. I, I hated going here. And all of a sudden, I've just had an encounter with the living God. An amazing thing happened to me. Have you been doing those kinds of things? It's just amazing. That's what makes Christmas so exciting, right? And Christmas every day of the year. When we're on mission for Christ, Christmas, we see things that other people never see. That's why being a Christian is so much fun. We talk about joy and hope. It's because we serve a living God, a God who knows our needs and answers our needs. He is the house of provision. And here they have received a miracle. And you can imagine the disciples. I, I, every time I read this, I can't stop and think. So they have these baskets, and uh, they're big baskets, right? But as they're going around, the baskets never go empty, right? That, I don't know how that works. It's just they've just got to be gobsmacked. They're just walking around, and here's some, and here's some, and here's some. But no matter how they dig into the basket, it never goes empty. And everybody gets fed, and there's enough scraps left over to fill up 12 baskets. So now these apostles who were out with Jesus working hard all day long, now each one of them has a basket full of food. They didn't bring any, right? And how God takes care of the workers and the needy alike. It's just a beautiful, beautiful picture in all of this. In this, I'm just mindful of a couple things. I love it when I go out to a meal and I see a family praying for their meal. I highly recommend that you do that. It's a wonderful way 
to bring Christ with you as you go out into the world. You don't have to get up and preach and the whole restaurant is listening to you or anything like that, but just stop and pause and give thanks for this food because you do realize it is because of God that every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven and that without God, we don't need to think. So why not just say thank you? And it's an opportunity to give testimony to him. And how many of you have been encouraged when you've seen a family do that? Or you've been praying with your friends and somebody else in the restaurant goes, I was so encouraged just to see you pray with your friends. And we sharpen iron one to another. As Christians out in the community, just give voice to our, our thanksgiving for Jesus. Um, I, I'm mindful of a prayer we often would say as missionaries. It was, it's, it's a joke prayer. It's, it's not, it's a true prayer, but it's funny. But here's the prayer, and then you decide what you want to do with it. It says, where, dear Jesus, where you lead me, I will follow, and what you feed me, I will swallow. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and some of you who have been out on mission, or maybe just at, you know, <laughs> Some of the stuff you gotta you gotta swallow, get her down. Um, but in this, and again, you maybe heard this before. But in the Lord's hands, little is much. And when Jesus turns to Philip and he says, "You feed them," to Philip's credit, Philip says, "We do have this." couple of fish and loaves. What is this amongst the people if we don't got buy food from them? But at least Philip did put in Jesus's hand that which he had. And for you and I, I don't know what you have. I don't know what your needs are. But I do know this. If you will place your needs in Jesus's hands, you can then allow him to do what he would want to do with that. Now, this isn't a health, wealth, and prosperity message. It's not like you're going to end up with a basket full of fish and bread. He might not even want a basket full of fish and bread. But he will give you what he knows you need. For some of us, it's a little less. <laughs> Nevertheless, put it in Jesus' hands and see what he will do with it. Now, there's a passage in uh, the other Gospels. This, this feeding of the 5,000, by the way, is the only miracle recorded by all four of the Gospels, okay? Many of them have this miracle recorded in these three, but not in that one. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It stood out in front of all of them. And, and think of it too, right? These guys, they've been sent out with power and authority, with a purpose to preach the kingdom. And sure enough, the demons obey and the he people are healed and they're so excited. They come back, they take a rest day, but it turns out to be the biggest work day of the whole week. And in all of that, Jesus does meet them at their need and he's teaching them a lesson. Who do you say that I am? Now, the people, they witnessed this miracle. Jesus lifted it up, blessed it, and broke it. They saw who it was that, that did the miracle. In John's gospel, in John chapter 6, at verse 14 and 15, um, it says, then, these, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. That's who they thought Jesus was, the miracle maker. 
Verse 15, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him a king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So this is the end story on this. He feeds the 5,000. They're going to come and take him and make him a king, like it or not. We need you, the miracle maker. You're a lot better than Herod. You be our king and we'll have fish and chips for life, right? Um, and so that was the sign, the, the, the heart of all that. And so then Jesus departs, right? And then he tells his disciples, get in a boat and go back to Capernaum. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember what happened last time they got in a boat and went across the sea. Big old storm, right? Where is your faith? <laughs> Peace, be calm. And the wind and the waves obeyed. But he's like, where's your faith? Now he has just done an amazing miracle, fed the 5,000, and now they're going to get in a boat and they start off across the lake again. It says a storm in Matthew's gospel came up that night, and it, the headwinds were so strong that they were rowing and rowing and rowing all night long. It shouldn't have taken that long to get across the lake, but the winds were just against them, and they were just, can you imagine how tired they must have been? And Jesus, it says, was up on the mountain watching them. And then early in the morning, he came walking across the Sea of Galilee, and when they saw it, they screamed like little girls, it's a ghost. They were afraid, it said. Jesus says, don't be afraid. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. And Jesus says, come on out, Pete. And Pete, in fact, walked on water, right? At least for a moment. And then the wind and the waves and the billows distracted him. He took his eyes off Jesus. He began to sing. Jesus grabbed his hand, pulled him up. They got in the boat instantly there on the other side. Those things are right tucked in here uh, as we go through the gospel. Um, so that's what happened uh, after the feeding of the 5,000. Then verse 18, we're moving on. They're now going to be in a different location. It says, it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and asked them, saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, others say one of the old prophets is risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Now, in the other gospel accounts, we can find that they had gone to a place known as Caesarea Philippi. Remember, I told you the kingdom was broken up into four parts. This is the northern part of the kingdom where Philip was the king, Herod Philip. And uh, back in the day, uh, Caesar Augustus had built a shrine in that area and named the city Caesarea and then he deeded it, he gave it as a gift to Philip, so it became known as Caesarea Philippi. There's Caesarea's cities named Caesar all over Israel, but this one was given to King Philip up in the north. But it's interesting, it's right at the, the foot of Mount Hermon, and there's a river that flows through there, one of the three main sources of the Jordan River, the Banyas River. And where the Banyas River meets the bottom of the hill, actually there's this huge grotto and the river, it's a big river, just springs right up out of this hole in the ground and starts flowing. And this is a place uh, known as Banyas. Um, and Banyas comes from the, the Greek god Pan. Now you might know Pan. He's this creature that's kind of like a goat man, body and he's all into drinking and revelry and dancing and partying. At any ways, they had built this, um, this memorial or this altar, I guess you would, of the, 
idolatrous pan there where this water comes up out of the ground. They nicknamed this place the gates of hell, this place where the water comes up. And now Jesus is there with them where all of these shrines and temples to Pan and Caesar and Philip. And if you go there, it's amazing. The marble is beautiful. The carvings are wonderful. You can walk the grounds, the water. It's full of rainbow trout. You can actually fish for trout there. Um, It's an amazing, beautiful, beautiful location. But then Jesus has all his disciples there. And in the midst of all this idolatry, he asks them a question. Who do you say that I am. Who do the people say I am? And the people have all different kinds of ideas of who Jesus is. I remember uh, when I married Cheryl, she was not raised in a Christian home. Far from it, okay? And all she knew about Christianity, never went to church, all she knew was every once in a while Christmas would come around and they would put these three people out on the lawn. One of them's a baby and a mom and a dad. And she knew enough by the time I married her that that was Joseph and Mary and Jesus. But she didn't have any idea if you asked her, who's Daniel or who's Joseph or who's Moses or all these people in the Bible, she never heard of any of that, right? And so who do you say that I am? Who do these people say that I am? This is the question that Jesus really has for them, right? As we get ready to celebrate Christmas, and we look at that baby in the manger, who do we say that is? What, what do we say? What do you tell your friends when you say, Merry Christmas? And they say, Happy Holidays. And you say, No, it's Christ. It's all about Jesus. Jesus who? Because, you know, much of America is very illiterate about the Bible anymore and really who Jesus is or what the significance of Jesus is. It's interesting in the gospel, or not in the gospels, in the, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus himself says who he is through the Holy Spirit writing to the author of Hebrews. And this is what Jesus has to say about that babe in the manger. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, therefore... When he, Jesus, the Christ, came into the world, that's the incarnation, that's his birth in the manger in Bethlehem. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, and now he, the babe, Jesus, the Christ, quoting from Psalm 40, written by David, says, and this is Jesus speaking of himself, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, the Son speaking to the Father, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will Oh, God, this is Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says Christmas is all about. A body you have prepared for me to do your will, oh, God. The volume of the book speaks of it. And then Hebrews says 
in chapter 10, verse 10, by that will, the will of the Son, who received the commission to go into the world and take on human flesh, that you might live a sinless life and die in the place of man. He says, by that will, we have been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Who do you say that I am? Who do we say that he is? Who is that Christ who we celebrate at Christmas? He is, as John the Baptist would say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, in becoming man, Jesus knew that he came to die, that we might, through him, live. That's the Christmas message that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to robe himself in stinky, yucky, icky human flesh and live amongst us, that he could die amongst us as a human and take on the penalty for man's fall, that in him then we, as Jesus rose from the grave, might follow him into eternity. Who do we say that he is? Paul boils it down really nicely, I think, into Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart, that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. He goes on to say, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the Christmas message. That's the glad tidings. That's what the work of the evangelist is to do, to tell the world he's the Christ, the Lamb of God. God in the flesh taking our place that we might be with him for eternity. Amen? Who do you say that I am? It says here, Peter answered and said, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. We read in Matthew 6, 16, and Jesus then goes on to say to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't do it with your noggin, but the father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And from now on, you'll be called Peter, okay, the rock. And upon this confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And all the idols and all the misunderstandings of who he is. Is he Elijah? Is he the prophet? Is he the, the Greek pantheon of idols? No. It's on that confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what we build our church on. I'm going to close up here. Uh, worship team can come on up. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. Interesting. I made this confession that you're Jesus. And now you don't want me to tell anybody. If you remember back in chapter uh, 7, John the Baptist sent his disciples 
are you the coming one or do we look for another? And remember, Jesus' final answer to the people is, um, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You do understand that I came to die. And so it goes on. He says, he strictly warned the commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. This is the gospel, right? We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the simple gospel, that Jesus Christ, according to the Scripture, was born, lived, died, and was buried according to the Scripture and rose on the third day. That is the good news. The volume of the book is written of me, a body you have prepared for me, that in my sacrifice, once and for all time, all the sins of the world have been put away to whoever would believe and receive, okay? And so, he says, he strictly warned them, command no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things. It's not an option. Jesus didn't come just to live a happy life. I mean, if there was something to all this health, wealth, prosperity, name it and claim it, and all these different things that different religious groups like to push on you, then why didn't Jesus do it? Health, wealth, prosperity. He could have been, he is king of the universe, but right? Why would he be born in a manger, not the top hospital of the day? Why didn't he live in the palaces? Because that's not who he is. That's not why he came. Who do we say that he is? He is this Christ, the Son of Man, who must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. This is the first mention in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus telling them that I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be executed. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to take my life. I must do this. It's not optional. He also is going to repeat it before the chapter is over in verse 43 and 45, and it says again there, and they didn't understand what he was talking about. And then in chapter 18 of Luke's gospel, in verses 31 through 34, they still don't understand, and Jesus says, and it was hidden from them. They just didn't, they just didn't have the ears to hear. Finally, in chapter 24, in verses 6 and 8, this is the morning of the resurrection. The angel says, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is risen. He is not here. And they explain, didn't he tell you when he was alive, this is what was supposed to happen? He was going to be killed and then raised again. And then in chapter uh, 24, verse 44 through 47, Jesus in the upper room that night after the resurrection with all the disciples gathered, starts teaching them out of the volume of the book, out of the law and the prophets and the Moses, it must happen that I would come to live, to die, to be lifted up, that you may go where I am. And so this is not optional. And he closes out with this. Then he said to them all, I must go and die. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Now we've all heard that, at least I would think most all of us, it's one of the really common verses that you hear out there and for good reason, because this is not a call to being born again. That's preaching the good news that Jesus has died for your sins. This is a call to discipleship. This is a call to then get in gear and go. Ite, misa est. Become a disciple. Become a follower. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. A lot of talk has gone on about what does this take up your cross mean? What is this talking about? And it's interesting in all of this. So many of us look at it as something that's like glorious and wonderful. And we put crosses on our buildings and we wear crucifixes and they're on your t-shirts. And you're so proud of our crosses. But you do know. And clearly in Jesus' day, and when he told these people this, you must take up your cross daily, that was the most cruel, hideous, not glorious, but goriest form of execution known to man. In fact, in Jesus' day, when he was a little boy, just six miles north of Nazareth, where he grew up, there was a town called Sepphoris, and it was a Roman outpost, and all the legions were there. And it's said that even Joseph and Jesus maybe made their living by helping build the town of Sepphoris up north of there. But at any rate, there was this rebel at the time, and uh, his name, Judas the Galilean, he raided the Roman armory. Okay, he wanted to overthrow Rome. Caesar didn't look lightly on that. Basically went in and burned the town down and sold all the men, women, and children as slaves. And the 2,000 rebels that were part of this uh, insurrection, he crucified them all along the roads. So when Jesus is talking about take up your cross, he's talking about a cross. And he's talking about denying yourself, dying to yourself. And to kind of develop that or, or flesh it out, it says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is to a man that if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? It's going to cost you your life. Now, just a little fun thing in here with the Greek, and I know you're up there waiting for me. That word life, there's three words for life in the Greek, bios, B-I-O-S, like in biology, right? That's physical life. And there's zoe, which is spiritual life, that quickening, that, that breath of God, the ruach, okay? The pneuma, this is just the power, the spark of life. But then there's one called suke, and that's where we get the word like psychiatry. And it has to do with the person, the personality. So you've got a physical body, you've got a physical body, but then you've got what a lot of people call the soul, your, your, your suke. Uh, in psychology, they refer to it as the id, the self, right? It's where we get the word id, people who fixate on themselves. They're all about themselves. We call them idiots. That's where that comes from. So if you, okay, so this is the word Jesus is using, suke, your id, Whoever desires to save his id, his personality, what he thinks of himself, will lose it. But whoever loses his suke, his, his personality, for my sake, will save it. We've got to deny ourselves. It's all about Christ. Who do I say that he is? He is my God. He was crucified that in him I might live. For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? And that's a simple one. There's no profit whatsoever. He goes on to say, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and of the holy angels. Who do you say that I am? It matters. It matters who you say I am. It's not easy to walk death row with Jesus. It means that we have to associate ourselves with someone who is despised and, ex 
and was executed. But if we're ashamed of him, it says he will be ashamed of us. Now, this is a radical call to personal allegiance to Jesus Christ. He wanted to know if we would be ashamed of him or his words. If Jesus were not God, this was an invitation to idolatry. But because he is God, it's an invitation to worship. It's no wonder that some were ashamed of Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry, given the story of Zephyrus and the things that were going on, Herod and what the people thought of him. It's astounding that any would be ashamed of him today. We've got, his, we've got the word. We know better. Jesus, we now know, is revealed in full glory of his sacrificial love. He's revealed in the full power of his resurrected glory. He's ascended to heaven, and he's honored. And we know that he's loving and praying for his people from heaven today. What is there to be ashamed of in that? Yet some are ashamed. Now, think this one through for just a second. The ashamed man believes. You can't be ashamed of something you don't believe in. You're a mugwump. You're sitting on the fence. You got your mug on one side and your wump on the other. You can't be ashamed of something you don't believe in. He believes, but he doesn't take satisfaction and confidence in his belief. Ashamed means you don't want to be seen together in public. Ashamed means you don't want to talk about him with friends and strangers. Ashamed means that you avoid him. Some are ashamed out of fear. Some out of social pressure. Some out of intellectual or cultural pride. Think about it, it's a strange phenomenon. When you know who he is, who do you say that he is? He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. I'm not ashamed of Christmas. I'm not ashamed to go into the world and proclaim the glad tidings, the good news that the war is over. Jesus Christ has won, and we fight from victory. I just would encourage you in this. Jesus goes on and finally closes with this one thought, 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. For those who are not ashamed, there's glory. There's hope. There's joy. This is why we sing. This is why we celebrate. This is why we bring Jesus to the world. Amen? Father God, I want to thank you that you have said who you are. You've shown who you are. You even sent us in your name that we would see your authority and your power active and alive in our lives and the lives of others. And we celebrate you. We rejoice in you. I do pray, Lord, for those who are weak 
in their faith, their belief, their trust. Help, I pray, their unbelief. Bring alongside friends to encourage them. Help them to take those steps of faith that will strengthen them and give them courage. We live in a world that needs you desperately. Help us not shrink back from the call. Help us to preach the glad tidings. Merry Christmas. Ite misa est. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.